If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And for our guests, my name is Kirk Alexander. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church, and today I'm giving our lead pastor, Pastor Brandon, uh, a break. And we're going to return to our sermon series um, from the Beatitudes, um, where we're considering what it means to be happy. And today, we're going to cover the seventh Beatitude. The seventh Beatitude. As Pastor Brandon told us, uh, these Beatitudes, they, they build on one another. And so we're, we've been taking them in order, and they've been building up. And now we're at Beatitude number seven. Matthew chapter five, verse nine is where we're going to end up. But I'm going to read the whole thing for context. And uh, I'm going to ask that you pray with me today because uh, for the last month or so, I've been having coughing fits. Going to the doctor at least three times. And I think he just finally gave me something that's going to help. But I don't know if it's going to help me right now. But I'm trusting the Lord to help. So please pray with me. And if that happens, we just going to get through it, right? We're just family here. I've been coughing in my house all the time and around my friends. So funny story, I was at a basketball game. And I don't have any kind of infection. And I just started coughing. Like, and this lady who was sitting next to me pulls out a mask. And she goes, (laughs) I felt so bad. I wanted to say to her, ma'am, I'm not sick. I promise you. But that wasn't going to fly, right? So anyhow, pray for me. Okay, you there? Let's read together. I'm going to read the whole thing for context, and we're going to focus in on verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Father, we confess that your word is truth and it is light and life for us. Now, Father, as we look at your word, we pray that you would send your spirit to illumine our minds, to help us search your word deeply, that we might receive truth, and not only receive it, but that we may be able to apply it to our lives for our good and for your glory. So we pray that you would meet us here. Father, I pray that you would help me to serve my brothers and sisters for their good. 
And I pray that you would be glorified in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, there are some certain words, phrases, uh, certain propositional statements that seem to set themselves apart from others because of their ability to enlighten us to a particular truth or reality. They're the kind of statements that we, we perhaps read or hear, and we feel like we've been taken from darkness to light, like we've gone from ignorance to understanding. Have you ever read anything like that, just one phrase or one word that stands out to you like that? Yeah, it's like the first time I heard Dr. R.C. Sproul refer to sin as cosmic treason. Really helped me. That really helped me to see how egregious my sin was against God, right? Well, in his book titled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, theologian Cornelius, I wanted to say Cornelius Van Til, but theologian Cornelius Plantinga, I guess if your name's going to be Cornelius, you probably need to be a theologian, right? Well, theologian Cornelius Plantinga, he takes a deep dive into the doctrine of sin in this book, and in doing so, he makes one of these ultra-illuminating statements. I want to read it for you. Here's what he writes in, his first, in the first chapter of his book titled, Vandalism of Shalom. He writes this. He says, do we have it projected? Good. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Indeed, that is why God has laws against a good deal of sin. For God is for shalom, therefore against sin. Amen, that helps me, right? Now, perhaps you're thinking, what's so earth-shatteringly enlightening about that, Pastor Kirk? And that's a fair question, and perhaps the reason you're asking that question is that you have no idea what this word shalom means, right? Or perhaps you've heard that word before. You know, if you have any Jewish or Hebrew friends, uh, they may greet you that way. Have you ever been greeted with that word, shalom? You ever been to Israel? That's the way everybody greets one another, shalom. And I promise you, they're not just saying, have a nice day. Right? Well, if we're going to understand what Jesus really meant here when he says blessed are the peacemakers, we need to dive deeply into this. Now, the word in our English Bibles, translated from the Greek, uh, in the original Greek, simply means to join together, right? Uh, but the, 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 the concept of shalom is much deeper than that. So we need to go to the Hebrew if we want to understand what Jesus meant and what his mostly Jewish audience would have understood when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Because this, this Hebrew word shalom is a very important word. In fact, it's used some 400 times in the scriptures to describe what we, again, translate into peace. So what is shalom? Well, let's go back to Dr. Plantinga because I was really held by the way he explains shalom and defines it. Here's what he says. Here's how he puts it. He says, 
The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, listen to this, injustice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means, listen to this, universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. I like that. A state of affairs, I don't be feeling joyful wonder all the time. How about you? But he says shalom is a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Isn't that that good? That sounds good, right? However, if we look throughout human history, we'd be hard-pressed to find even a brief period of time that could be described this way, can't we? When we look through human history, human history is rife with conflict, rife with war and hostilities, whether it's strife in families or war between nations and tribes, conflict between Christians. Conflict is such a fixture in the world that we oftentimes believe that it's just the way it's supposed to be. So shalom, what is that? Right, most of us, what is that? Is that just a dream or uh, the summation of the dreams of the Hebrew prophets, their, their imagination running wild? Or is that a real thing? Well, it certainly is a real thing. And in fact, there is a brief period in human history where shalom was indeed the state of affairs. Can anybody, does anybody know when that was? Amen. Yes. In the Garden of Eden before man fell into an estate of sin. In the Garden of Eden before our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and fell into sin, shalom was the state of affairs. Mankind and all creation dwelt with God in perfect harmony and right relationship. Everything was flourishing. There's justice. No disease, no natural disasters. Everything was just as God designed it to be. But then something catastrophic happened. Man, whom God had given dominion over all creation, rebelled against God and sinned. And he fell into a state of sin. And as Plantanga puts it, sin, when it entered into the world, vandalized shalom. It ruined shalom. It it disrupted the peace. It disturbed the peace. And once sin vandalized shalom, everything changed. Nature started to misbehave. 
the animal world began to misbehave, mankind began to misbehave. Indeed, mankind began to war against God. And when mankind is not at peace with his creator, how many people know that mankind's not going to be in peace with his fellow man? And so right after the fall, the Bible records the first murder where Cain rises up and he kills his brother Abel. And from that moment on to today, what has marked human history is conflict, hostility, a breach of shalom. And so it's into this context that Jesus, speaking to a mostly Jewish audience, looks at them and says, blessed, happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, that's a radical statement to make, especially with Jerusalem in the backdrop. Jerusalem at that time in the last 400 years had endured five major brutal and bloody wars. And here's Jesus saying, blessed is the peacemaker. He was saying, if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God, this is what you ought to be like. And so for the next few minutes, I want us uh, to just simply take a look at what it looks like to be peacemakers. How many people want to be peacemakers? As you're going to see in just a moment, it's, it can be some difficult work at times, but it's worthwhile. So we want to look at that. And as is often the case, sometimes it's helpful to uh, explain what something is not before we explain what it is. So I want to do that. I want to first start by explaining what peacemaking is not. And here's the first thing if you're taking notes. First, peacemaking is not assuring that we're never engaged in conflict. Peacemaking is not assuring that we're never engaged in conflict. Some people uh, wrongly uh, believe that the absence of conflict will lead to peace. So their approach to peacemaking is something like, Everybody go to their respective corner of the world or corners of the house and uh, keep your hands to yourself and everything will be just fine here. We'll, we'll all dwell in peace, right? Well, how many people know that doesn't work with sinners? <laughs> sinners don't go to their respective corners and keep their hands to themselves, right? And mind their own business, right? We sin against one another. The other problem with this approach to peacemaking is that it fails to recognize that shalom is not simply an absence of conflict, but it's also the presence of things like justice and righteousness and wholeness and flourishing. For Jesus, peacemaking is about setting things aright. It's about dealing with the sin that has disturbed the peace in the first place. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17 says, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. You see, the world wants peace without righteousness. And that simply produces injustice. Amen? How many people know you cannot be at peace with a nation, 
or a neighbor who wants to rob you of your possessions, right? You can't be at peace with a nation or a neighbor that wants to physically attack you at every turn. First, righteousness has to be secured, and then righteousness will bring about peace. You see, sometimes, in order to bring about peace, you got to bring the conflict to an head. You have to bring the conflict to a head in order to secure peace. Now, if you grew up in a neighborhood like I grew up in, you probably have experiential knowledge of that. Amen? What happens when you've garnered the attention of one of the neighborhood bullies? Will that bully simply leave you alone if you be nice to him or her and give them everything they want? Absolutely not. Most certainly not. Um, I'm thinking of one particular incident in my neighborhood where I probably was about nine years old, third or fourth grade, and my sister and I, my older sister and I, were moving from one school to another, and we had this brother and sister who every day, they would just try to pick a fight with us. We just wanted peace, but as David said, they were for war, right? And so how do we resolve that issue? Well, days and days went by, even weeks, and we didn't do anything about it, and they just kept picking a fight with us until one day I told my sister, I said, you know what? We're going to have to lay hands on them. We're going to have to fight, right? And guess what? I told my sister, I said, tomorrow, if they push us around, we, we got to do it. We got we to gotta, we gotta fight, right? And guess what? Just as, we, just as I thought, the next day, got off the bus, and they, they started to push us around, shove us around, right? And uh, we put it on them real good. We secured peace with them. <laughs> Amen? Now, you might be saying, Pastor Kirk, did Jesus not say to turn the other cheek? Yes, he did. There's an application to that, right? But there are times when confrontation, physical confrontation, even armed confrontation, uh, is the right prescription. The Bible supports that. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 20, um, there's instructions for how to deal with a bully or deal with a bullying na nation. And guess what? It involves armed conflict. And so sometimes you're just going to have to fight it out. You're going to have to be physical to get peace. Now, most of the time that's not the case. We can resolve things with talking. But again, peacemaking is not uh, making sure that we're not involved in any kind of conflict. Sometimes we got to engage problem. Amen? Here's another thing that peacemaking is not. It's not pretending that there is really no issue when there really is an issue so that we can simply coexist with others. Look at chapter 5 here, verses 23 and 24. It says, 
So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now I've always been pricked by the fact that this verse says, if you remember that your brother has something against you. Because what I'm inclined to think is that if my brother's got an issue with me and I don't have an issue with my brother, then the issue is my brother's issue. Amen? But Jesus doesn't make it that easy for us. Jesus says, if you realize your brother has something against you, go and make it right. Amen? We're not allowed to just go along to get along or simply to be nice to other people in order to coexist with them, hoping nothing blows up. Being nice and coexisting ignores legitimate issues. Peacemaking, real biblical peacemaking, resolves those issues. This often means that peacemaking is going to be uncomfortable and emotionally taxing. But in the long run, biblical peacemaking produces worthwhile peace. So again, peacemaking is not pretending that we don't have an issue where there really is an issue. How many people are inclined to be that way? We know something's wrong. We know we need to address it, but we really don't want to deal with it. So we just kind of let it go on and we hope nothing blows up. And guess what always happens? It always blows up eventually. Amen? So it's not pretending there's not an issue. Here's one final thing that peacemaking is not. It is not demanding that everybody shares our perspective, right? True peacemakers recognize that in every, any given circumstance or situation or conflict, in any disagreement, we're not going to perfectly appraise the situation. Real peacemakers or mature peacemakers recognize that we all have blind spots. We recognize that we're not omniscient, we don't see everything perfectly, and that we may be getting some things wrong. And so we, we ought to be willing to acknowledge this and not require that others see things exactly the way we see them before we can extend fellowship or uh, restore the relationship. Being willing to extend grace um, and fellowship, even if we believe that we're right, um, is the mark of a mature Christian, right? It's the mark of a true peacemaker. So peacemaking is not demanding that everybody sees everything exactly like you'll see it or that everybody agrees with you. Amen? Well, let's quickly jump into what peacemaking is because I'm sure that's what you want to hear. And, and we can see that in verses 22 through 26. There's about uh, eight or nine principles there, but I want to just cover four of them. I'm going to cover four of them. The first thing Jesus points out is a need to check our anger if we're going to be peacemakers. If we're going to be effective peacemakers, we need to check all of our emotions, but especially our anger. Look at verse 22. It says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable, of, liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, which flows from anger, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool which flows out of anger, will be liable to hellfire. This verse makes it clear that if you're going to be a peacemaker, you'll have to keep your emotions 
in check, especially anger. Because in most cases, whether you're engaged in, um, directly engaged in a conflict with another person or people, or whether you're outside of the conflict, but you're simply trying to act as a peacemaker between different parties, there's going to be sin involved. Conflict always involves sins, right? Disagreements involve sin. And where there's sin, there's hurt, right? Hurt feelings. And where there's hurt feelings, things are going to get very emotional. There's always the possibility of things getting very emotional. And so we have to check our anger. James chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? If you're in the peacemaking process and you allow your anger to gain control, you're going to blow the whole thing up whether that's a quiet anger that's just brewing, that, that perhaps never comes out, uh, manifests itself uh, outwardly, or if it's just some outward expression of anger, it's going to blow the peacemaking process up because righteousness produces peace. The anger of man produces self-righteousness, right? But to have real peace, we need the righteousness of God. That's a vital feature to peace. So we have to check our anger. Amen? Here's the second thing. And it piggybacks off this, this one point about checking our anger. We need to direct our anger at the cause of the conflict and not at the person. We need to direct our anger at the cause of the conflict and not at the person. The reason I said we need to check our anger is because the Bible makes it absolutely clear that anger doesn't necessarily have to be sinful, right? Anger is an emotion that God gives us, and it can be sinful or not sinful. Anger is a force. It has energy. And so what real peacemakers understand is that what we need to be angry about is the thing that has broken shalom, the sin that has broken shalom, and not the person, right? It takes discernment. It takes Maturity to be able to do that. But we need to put our anger in the right place. That looks like being angry at our own sin, right? That looks like being angry about my self-righteousness that won't allow me to resolve a conflict with a brother and sister in Christ or, or a conflict with my spouse. I need to be angry at the sin. I need to direct my energy at dealing with the sin. First mine, and perhaps someone else's. So peacemaking involves um, rightly directing our anger. Amen? Here's something we can easily overlook in peacemaking. And that is, we need to watch our mouth. We need to we need to guard our words, right? Words matter. Notice in verse 22, the severity of the consequences of simply saying to a brother, you fool. Jesus says, you'll be liable to hellfire. And I always read that and thought, that's a bit extreme. You know how many people I've called a fool? 
Yeah. Jesus says, be careful. Say that kind of thing and you're liable to hellfire. See, Jesus obviously didn't agree with the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Jesus obviously didn't agree with that because Jesus understood that words do matter. Words do cause hurt, right? And so we have to watch our words. Now, anybody who's ever done marital counseling or premarital counseling with me has heard my, my nuke spiel, right? Right? A nuke, in my opinion, is something in your relationship, whether it's in your marriage relationship or with your friends or family, a nuke is something that you know about a person that you know that if you employ it or if you use it in the midst of a conflict, it's going to hurt. It's going to be devastated. And when we get to know people real well, we figure out what those things are, right? And how many of you know that even good Christians, when we're hurting, we oftentimes want other people around us to feel our hurt, right? Even Christians who come to church every Sunday, who read their Bibles every day, who pray, and sometimes go in there and find that nuke, that one thing they know to say that's going to devastate the other person, and bam, well, this or that. And my counsel is never use nukes. They're devastating. They're devastating. Eventually, you start lobbing nukes in your relationship, whether it's in your marriage or in your friendships or in your relationships with family, and eventually the person or persons will start to believe that you're not for them. Amen? So we need to guard our words. Words matter. And we need to be careful when we're peacemaking that we use the right words. Amen? Here's a fourth principle to remember when peacemaking. Don't put the onus on on another person to initiate resolving the conflict. Don't put the onus on the other person to initiate resolving the conflict. I've already alluded to this principle, but we can see it in verses 23 and 24, which says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Be aware. Be aware of the potential for stubbornness. It's very easily, very easy, especially when we've convinced ourselves that we're right about something, to stand aloof, cross our arms, and wait for the other person to come crawling and begging for our forgiveness and begging for reconciliation. If we were to keep it real, that's really what we want when we've been injured, right? When we feel we're right and we've been wrong, we want the other person to come crawling back to us. And Jesus says that's unacceptable. How much peace is going to be had in a situation where you're convinced that you've been wronged and you're absolutely right, and the other person or the other party is convinced that they're right and that they've been wronged, And you both take up that posture. How much peacemaking is going to happen? 
None at all, right? Pretty obvious. Don't put the onus on the other person to initiate resolving the conflict. You take the initiative with the help of the Lord, with the grace of the Lord, and it takes grace because guess what you're trying to overcome? You're trying to overcome every fleshly impulse in you that says, you don't go to them, they need to come to you. They've wronged you. And so you pray and you resolve in your mind and commit yourself to taking those first steps towards reconciliation. Amen? Amen. Just a couple more principles and we'll wrap up. Look at verse 24. Peacemakers must resolve conflicts as quickly as possible. Now, notice how Jesus prioritized reconciliation of broken relationships above personal piety. He says, leave your gift, your offering at the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother first, then come back and worship. If there's a problem, prioritize setting the relationship right. You see, Jesus understands the damage that can be caused when we just stew over unresolved offense. One of the greatest gifts that the Holy Spirit can give us as Christians is to make us uncomfortable when we're in unresolved conflict with a brother and sister in Christ. I can tell you there are times where I have not been able to sleep because there's an unresolved conflict. In some cases in those conflicts, I was wrong, and in some cases I was right. But I now consider it a gift that the Holy Spirit would not allow me to sleep well until that conflict was resolved. And so we need to pray and we need to be wise and resolve conflicts quickly when they happen. We don't need to steal over anything. It's wise to be thoughtful and to gain as much information as possible in order to rightly deal with the situation. But we need to, uh, we need to resolve conflicts quickly. Amen? Here's one final principle to remember when we're peacemaking. Remember that the goal in peacemaking is setting relationships aright and not being right. The goal in peacemaking is setting relationships aright and not simply being right. Have you ever been in a situation where you won the argument, but you lost the relationship? I've been in that kind of situation. I can think of one particular Facebook dust-up I had where I, I feel like I won the theological argument, but because my priority was being right, my priority was proving my point, I really lost the affection of a brother in Christ. To this day, I think it's the, it's the case. And I've tried to do what I can to make that right. But I did not prioritize communicating my love and affection for that brother. What I wanted to do there in that instant, because everybody's watching, was I wanted to prove I'm right and you're wrong. And so I allowed something to go on and on and on and say things that probably should only be said face to face. And I won the argument, but I lost, I lost that person. Even though that person might say, now we're good, we're cool. I, I don't think we are. 
So in peacemaking, we need to prioritize people. Amen? That's what it's about. It's about restoring and reconciling relationships and not being right. Sometimes it's okay to just be right and never have the other person come to a, a, a place where they agree that, that, that you're right. Right? It takes humility to do that, but to say, okay, we've, we've, we've exhausted this. This is the way it's going to be. And we're still, we still can be in fellowship. We're still brothers. We're still sisters. We, we can still be in fellowship. Amen? So as you go about peacemaking, remember, it's about people. That's what Jesus was all about, right? Jesus was all about winning people to the kingdom. That, that, that doesn't mean that we have to compromise our theological convictions, right? We don't, we don't have to do that. But it does mean that we, we need to prioritize people. Amen? Finally, our text highlights two incentives to peacemaking, right? The first thing it tells us is that peacemakers are blessed. And if you remember, Pastor Brandon explained to us how this word uh, blessed uh, in, in, the, in the Greek can be translated as happy. A peacemaker is a happy person. Peacemaking leads to the happy life. And if you remember how we defined shalom earlier as justice, flourishing, wholesome, and delighting, then it just makes sense that a person that pursues that constantly is going to be a happy person, right? A person who sets their priority in their life to pursue peacemaking is simply, it's not going to always mean that you're in a good place. Sometimes, again, peacemaking gets ugly. But if that's your posture, you're going to be a happy person. It's going to produce a certain level of joy in your life. But then there's one more incentive in the text that, that it holds out for those of us who pursue peacemaking, and all Christians ought to pursue peacemaking, and it is that we will be called the sons of God. We'll be called the sons of God. That's sons and daughters in this context. And, and it's not saying that um, we become sons and daughters of God by being peacemakers. You're already a son or a daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ, right? But what it's saying is, is that when people see us and we're peacemaking and they see our character in the peacemaking, it's going to remind them of God, who is the chief peacemaker. That's how the Bible describes God. He's the God of peace in Scripture, right? And so when others see us engaged in peacemaking, they're going to say, you look like God. You look like your father. You look like a child of God, a son or a daughter of God. And I can't think of a greater honor than that. Amen? How many people want to be known as a son or daughter of God? And so that's the blessing of pursuing peacemaking. And again, let me encourage you. Sometimes it's easy, easier to just stand back and not engage. It's safer. You won't get burnt. But if you'll trust Christ in that, if you'll trust the word and pursue peacemaking in the long term, you'll have a blessed life. Amen? Now, just one more thing before I close. I want to speak to anybody here today who's not reconciled to God. 
who does not have peace with God. And what the Bible says is that if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, as your only uh, appeasement to God for your sin, then you're alienated from God. In fact, the Bible says that you're in enmity with God. That is, you're in a hostile relationship with God. Amen? And if that's you today, I want to I wanna appeal to you that it doesn't have to be that way. God is your creator. He made you. He designed you. He knows you. He designed the world you live in. Every breath you take is a gift from God. We're not even in control of our very next breath. How many people know that? I'm humbled by that. And so you owe God your worship, all of you. You owe him everything. And he's made it easy for you. He's made a way for you to be reconciled with him, not by you doing something amazing, but he's made a way by simply sending his son Jesus, who is perfect, who did keep his law perfectly. The way God made for reconciliation is that you placed all your trust in Jesus, who is the king, and that you repent of your sins and place trust in Jesus. And if you do that, The promise of the Bible is that God will extend forgiveness, that he will welcome you into his family. That's the good news. That's the good news. Perhaps the good news is better when it's set in contrast with the bad news. The bad news is if you don't know God and you harden your heart in pride and vain glory, and you say, I have no need for God, and you stand back, what the Bible promises is that there is coming a day of judgment. You may not be able to uh, understand it, or you, you may scoff at it, but there's coming a day of judgment where God will call every human being to accountability. And apart from Jesus, there is no help. The Bible says that God will separate you from himself and from all of his benevolence and goodness forever. The Bible calls that hell, whether you believe it or not. And so that's my appeal this morning. Trust Jesus, humble yourself, come to God, confess your sins, and receive the grace that comes through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and come into this family and experience shalom with God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that because of Jesus, we do have shalom, peace with you. And we thank you that because of Jesus, we can make shalom in our relationships, that we can make peace in our relationships. I pray for those who are listening here today, Lord, that by your spirit and through the wisdom of your word, that you would prepare us for such a work. For the good of ourselves and those around us, and for your great glory, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.